Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through America's dumbest timeline. I'm Maggie Moore, joined by Frank Spring, and Ellie has this week off because America and our personal crew was entirely sick of him, so we shipped him off across the ocean. Indeed we did, and he knows what he did. Uh, Maggie, thanks. For, uh, thank you very much. It is uh, a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for your fulsome praise for your uh, strange, uh, lengthy hate missives, uh, both nourish us. Please keep them coming. Only your hottest takes, please. Uh, don't don't bring us any of that weak tea. We want hot takes, hot takes only. Send them in large numbers. Uh, our website is uh, www.takingship.com. We have T-shirts to sell you, as you may know. I know this is not something we talk about very often. Um, it's a very private matter within the crew, but nonetheless, but we do think you should know there are T-shirts available. Uh, we can't we can't keep it secret forever. So please purchase some from us, uh, and uh, please join our fleet on Twitter at at taking ship. And that's ship with a P as in porcine. You can follow Maggie at at Maggie M012, Ellie at at Ellie Jacobs, and Frank, that's me, at at Frank Spring. So this week, the law. What is the law? Why do we have it? Can we eat it? The law. It's a mystery. And we are joined by our returning guest, Xander Mice, who will help us understand the law. Xander, fortunately for this for us in this podcast, is an attorney. Uh, she has represented and advised sovereign governments, state-owned enterprises, private entities, uh, and uh, and other enterprises in the uh, prevention and resolution of international private and public law disputes. Uh, this has been in a variety of courts, as well as the ICC, the International Court of or the ICJ, I should say, the International Court of Justice. Uh, she has worked with government entities. She teaches human rights at Georgetown. She is here in a personal capacity. None of this is legal advice. Xander is not your lawyer, listeners. However, by listening to this podcast, you are now our lawyers. Good luck with that. We have a large number of important things to talk about with you immediately. So again, Xander is not your lawyer, listeners. You are our lawyers. Uh, we, we now go to figure out what is the law. Welcome, Xander. Hello. Great to be here. Yes, thank you so much for joining us because like I maybe have some stuff in my past that I need some advisement on, but we can talk about that offline. How does that sound? I'm not a criminal lawyer, Maggie, just to your know. Well, then Plus, what that's what our listeners are for. Our listeners that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. People, people on Twitter then slide into my DMs and tell me how to avoid the things in my past. <laughs> um, anyway, so yes, Xander, we're so excited to have you here. Um, and as Frank was saying... How does law work? Um, I think is a really important question that we're all asking ourselves right now. And, um, you know, we have the schoolhouse rock song, how does a bill become a law? And then after that, no, people stopped caring. Um, so please help us. Um, and we'll, I, I think a great place for us to, to begin is at the highest court in the land. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the Supreme Court news right now. Um, so I am interested in getting us down to talking about some important SCOTUS decisions that affect, you know, could affect potentially our day-to-day lives um, or, you know, could send us screaming into a whole abyss of madness. So let's dig into those. So why don't we dig into one that I feel like was a really big deal and maybe has been talked about a lot to death, but I still think bears repeating, is Masterpiece Cake Shop. Um, Xander, can you give us a little bit of a primer sort of what was that decision um, and how did it work out and why should we care about it? So the case is called Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. 
And the case was about a baker who refused to sell a custom wedding cake. So not just an off-the-shelf cake, but a custom wedding cake to the same-sex couple. Um, but he said he would sell them pre-made cakes that were on the shelf or other baked goods in, in his shop. Um, now, the couple filed a charge with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission uh, with, uh, under Colorado's Anti-Discrimination Act, which prohibited discrimination based on sexual orientation in places of business that have sales to the public. Um, fast forward, that commission finds that the baker is in violation of the act. Baker um, appeals this, this decision and it goes up to the Supreme Court because it raises constitutional questions, First Amendment issues. Does this affect the baker's free speech rights as an artist and expressing himself through cake? And then also, did it affect his um, religious freedom rights, his rights to express his religion in the way he sees fit, to exercise his religion, things like this. So the Supreme Court spends a lot of time talking about, is at oral argument, is the baker an artist? Is a makeup artist an artist? Is a photographer an artist? How do we decide what's art, what's not? Um, also, how does one's expression of religion manifest in things like um, your artistic expression in uh, being able to engage in certain activities? Can the government tell you what to do in your activities um, in having to write, for instance, certain religious messages on a cake or not? So is the Masterpiece Cake Shop, and, and as these things go, that's a terrific title for uh, also a PBS program on, on pa about pastries. Uh, is the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision, we really could turn that into a television franchise. Is that about... Watch it. Is this not yeah, exactly? Is this not it? So this was not about an up or down position from the Supreme Court on gay marriage itself, right? Like this is this is seen as affecting gay marriage, and it, it very clearly is one hundred percent relevant. But this decision was not about gay marriage itself. Is that correct? Right. This was really about the government having to demonstrate that it is neutral towards religion and does not value particular religions over other religions or disparage certain religions. So. When the Supreme Court is then looking at what the Colorado Civil Rights Commission did and what happened at the lower, lower levels, they point out to language used by the commissioners that they said, for instance, was not neutral towards uh, the baker's expression of religion, that these commissioners had expressed hostility in public hearings towards the religion. They had disparaged certain religious beliefs. And that's what really seemed to get the goat of SCOTUS on this. And so given, as, as the majority put it, the context of the discussions, the language used, the approach that the commissioners used towards the baker, they said, look, we have to think that there, well, the exact words were that there's been cast doubt on the fairness and impartiality of the commission's adjudication of the baker's case. So in light of that is why they found in favor of the baker, right? Okay, it's so about, it was the... So it was the way the lower court, it was the process by which they discussed the case, not the decision. That, so in theory, there's a way they could have talked about it and come to the same conclusion, and the Supreme Court might not have taken the case. We might have found another way. Precisely. And that would be what Justice Kagan did. So Justice Kagan, in, in her um, writings on this case, she explains how that the Colorado Commission could have ruled in a way that was religiously neutral and based solely on a legal analysis, but still achieved the same conclusion. Um, basically that the baker had violated anti-discrimination law. She's like, look, there was a way to do this that was more neutral. It wasn't done, but here's how it could have been done, mm -hmm. right? 
So it's not all hope is lost is what you're saying. Not all hope is lost. If you are in favor of gay marriage. Exactly. Ah, <laughs> oh, good. So this is this is a new binary we're going to work with on Supreme Court cases. Does this plunge us into the madness abyss, or does it not plunge us into the madness abyss? And it feels like this one might not plunge us into the madness abyss. Yeah, I mean, th- it's interesting. We saw several cases this term where you had a justice end up writing either a dissent or a concurrence, uh, and uh, as Maggie asked at the beginning, like, oh, explain the law thing. So let, so let me just remind everyone what a concurrence is. <laughs> no, so, please. Okay. We still haven't discovered whether we can eat the law. I, I very much want to know this. You can eat the cake. I can say that, but not, maybe not the law. Yes, the yes, not so yes. <laughs> so, okay. When, when the Supreme Court comes out with a decision, there is the ruling, right? And there, and there is a majority opinion, which is can be, let's say, five justices or more out of the nine, right? Uh, if five or justice, five justices or more agree, that's the majority opinion. Someone who, let's say, is the sixth justice but still agrees with the ultimate holding of the court, the ultimate final outcome, but maybe doesn't agree with the reasoning or wants to emphasize a particular point, they can write something called a concurrence. So I concur in the judgment, but here's some extra reasoning, here's some more stuff I want to talk about, that kind of thing. And then the dissent is the, the answer is no. I disagree with the outcome and here's why. So you can have multiple dissents. You can have multiple concurrences. You can have, sometimes you end up with what's called a plurality. So there really isn't a majority, but at least there's enough justices that agree on the outcome that you have multiple different opinions. So it can be, it can be a hot mess sometimes. This is all, that's very much how it works when Maggie and Allie and I are in the pub together. Yeah, I was just going to say, this sounds like my friends talking about, you know, the, uh, the decision of another friend of ours to get back together with an ex. Like, we all disagree for different reasons, or some agree that this is a good idea. I'm like, I want to, like, formally put this structure into my friend groups um, so we can just, like, get our opinions out there and then move on. So, yeah, I like that. There you go. So we've managed to avoid the madness abyss on that one, maybe narrowly, although it may come back around again. Mm. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about another about another case. Uh, let's talk about Carpenter, Carpenter uh, versus the United States. What is at stake in this particular case? What was the what was the dispute here, and and why why does it matter? What's because it? it's an important one. Why? So um, can the man know where you are at all times? Is the one sentence summary? Doesn't he? Doesn't he already? I mean, I ask you, friends. Yeah, knee-jerk as a woman. I'm like, no, thank you. But tell us more. Okay. So this is about whether the government needs a warrant to find out cell phone tracking data with regards to your cell phone. And what happened here where was that the government was trying to find out who was doing certain robberies of, ironically, cell phone stores. Uh, <laughs> and they ended up getting from the cell phone company information about where particular cell phone had pinged. So location data, right? About where the cell phone pinged. And the argument from the government was, we don't need a warrant because you are giving this information to your cell phone company, right? You agree as part of having your cell phone, the cell phone company knows where these things are. There's certain information traditionally that we get to get um, without a warrant because there's a principle known as as the third party principle. Like if you've given the information to a third party that it's no longer super secret. And so we don't need a warrant to get it. 
I find that so, I'm sorry to interrupt. I find that so shady though, because there's so many apps that are running in the background of your phone that you don't even know um, are using your current location. And like, yes, I realize that even if you don't realize that you're doing it, or if you don't realize that you're committing a crime that still doesn't get you off the hook, but still that's shady, that's shady. Right. So this is why so many people were watching this case closely because, okay, in the context of this particular case, they then, you know, use this to find out that this guy really had robbed some T-Mobile stores and, or at least that's what he was convicted for and this kind of thing. And you think about it, oh, it's a criminal context. Like what's the big deal? But to your point, okay. I mean, Starbucks knows way too much about me and, and what I drink and where I drink it, for example. Um, right. And then you think of an app like Uber or something like that. And yes, your entire life is in this thing you now carry in your pocket. Everybody knows everything about you. And despite what you watch on TV, you know, when uh, on, on Criminal Minds or insert some crime procedural here where they can magically track everybody at all times, um, you know, that wasn't actually legally possible. So this case was about what, what was the extent of which the government actually does need to go through some of the formal processes, the protections to get that information. Um, and the Supreme Court ended up coming out saying, okay, guess what? They do need a warrant for this. So you can, you can breathe easier, Maggie, about the apps and what they're tracking for you. Thank God, because I didn't even realize that like the Delta airline app that I had my ticket on was tracing my location. I'm like, this is freaking me out. So thank you, warrants. (laughs) (laughs) But, But let me just also note that this is a, perhaps a temporary moment of, no. Because oh God, no, I thought the madness abyss still waits for us. <laughs> because here's the problem with the law, right? Which I love, and I love so much. But uh, it is an aircraft carrier. It is often very slow moving. It is not good at changing shape or changing direction very quickly. Same. <laughs> so uh, when it comes to technology in particular, you know, there's some struggles, right? Because those who are interpreting the law are also perhaps not the most technologically savvy individuals. So wait, what? You know, Hold the phone. Are you saying <laughs> that judges in this country maybe don't super know how their cell phone works? Yeah. So <laughs> it's okay. The legislature will say this. As anyone who's seen a hearing involving Chuck Grassley knows, we you know the, you know any any future law passed by the uh, passed by this Congress is going to be absolutely technologically where we need it for it to be. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'll get to Grassley and Congress in a second. Uh, but right now, <laughs> the, the Supreme Court saying, okay, in this case, with this sort of information from uh, a tower dump, so your cell phone location records, we're going to say you need a warrant. But, uh, and then this is what gets pointed out to in, in um, uh, concurrences by justices and things like that and dissents, like, this is really messy. And we don't necessarily know how this would come out with regard to other apps or other types of technology that may evolve. Uh, get to get to those. We're just talking about these particular circumstances right here, and uh, so that's going to be quite interesting to see how that develops. Also, Congress could decide to make certain changes, which then do allow government to have this information without a warrant. Um, so they could, uh, you know, there's the change, uh, the stored communications act, for instance, or some other things that are out there that already allow the government to engage in certain information collecting. Uh, but Congress does have the ability, uh, to 
authorize within you know parameters law enforcement to get certain information without a warrant. So we'll have to see. So madness abyss only delayed, not utterly, utterly forestalled. Okay, good. All right. Uh, continuing on the binary. Ah, speaking of the madness abyss, let's talk about. Uh, I'll, we'll we'll go to a couple of cases here. I'll I'll introduce the first one, and then and then Meg will bring up the the second that have been uh, very much more high profile, I think, than than Carpenter or Masterpiece Cake Shop. Uh, and so let's talk about the first one here. Trump versus Hawaii. That decision came down. Uh, just a, a quick sense. What is this? What 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 was Trump versus Hawaii? Why did it matter? Why is why is why has it caused such a fur? Okay, so Trump versus Hawaii is Muslim ban 3.5, Muslim ban 4.0, have you able to look at it? Um, Which is just infrastructure week 7.5, so, you know, it all... all So this case is a... uh, The president has the authority to restrict who can get a visa and not into the United States and who can immigrate into the United States. Uh, And he issued these orders based on particular countries... Um, most of which by 4.0, all but two of which were countries with large Muslim populations. The two exceptions were North Korea and Venezuela. Um, And so the question before the court was, okay, can the president do this, right? Can the president have this kind of restriction? Is it actually a violation of back to our First Amendment Establishment Clause situation? You know, is this about the government preferencing one religion over another since it's focusing on... um, countries, as I said, that have these large Muslim populations. And the Supreme Court comes out and says, you know what? Yeah, the president can do this. The president has a lot of authority in the realm of immigration. Uh, the, the executive here has pointed to some data, so they say, uh, about this being a national security issue. And when it comes to national security, when it comes to immigration, we look at what the Constitution authorizes the executive to do and Congress to do and what certainly the judiciary is not supposed to be involved in. And we're going to leave this to those branches to do it. This is for the political branches to decide. And in particular, the president having a lot of authority on relations with foreign states, we're going to let him have this one. And what's interesting is that, as I, and I say this is banned, you know, 3.5 or 4.0. This has gone through several iterations over the year and a half that he's been in office. And what started out with something that really would not have passed legal muster, it evolved, probably with lawyers actually finally being involved in the writing of this, into something that was crafted to be neutral on the face of the words on the page, such that Skoda said, okay, you can have it. Um, And uh, Sotomayor wrote a scathing, like tears in eyes, angry uh, dissent. What I've heard from those who were in the courtroom is that even reading her dissent doesn't really convey the emotion that was behind her um, displeasure, shall we say, (laughs) the majority's ruling. Because what happened was is basically the majority said, look, on the page, this looks fine. We see that there's, an, there's a you know national security connection, so we're going to let it go. And she says, you need to look at his tweets, all the statements by the government, all this other stuff behind it, and to see that this is a farce. And that's this is concerning going forward because you look at it and you think, okay, if the administration thinks that this is okay, then what else will they think is okay? If the court majority has not called out the administration on the tweets, for instance, or other certain statements 
then what's to hold back those in the administration from making such bold statements and things like that going forward? What are the limits of the executive's reach? So I don't really have a lot of good news today. I seem like to be the one. Which is fine. I mean, I feel like there just isn't a lot of good news out there generally, but I feel like we also just like need to be prepared for like, for all of it. So I, I welcome, I welcome it. Also this decision, this kind of decision, this uh, Trump versus Hawaii is kind of like the court decision, the little court decision that could, it's like the zombie one. Like it just keeps coming back. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. see. Um, Well, speaking of then sort of where do we go from here type decisions, um, I would love to just get a quick sort of like, what does this mean for folks about the Janus decision? Um, I'm particularly interested uh, because I come from a labor family. Um, You know, my mother, well, she just retired, so I'm so proud of her. Uh, But she was- Congratulations. congratulations. Yeah, uh, she was a public school teacher for a long time. And, um, you know, my father works in in labor rights. So I'm interested, sort of tell me, give us sort of like the, what Janice actually means and sort of what that could look like um, in the future. So- Janice is the case about whether public sector union employees need to contribute money to a union, even if it's not full dues, um, if, even if they're not members of that union, okay? And the court said, no, you, you cannot force uh, non-union members to pay any kind of money towards you, even if they benefit from what the union negotiates. So this has been a case watched for a long time. Uh, there's, you know, there's all this call of, oh goodness, is this going to be the death of unions and things like that? Um, I mean, I hate to say it, but this was not a surprise in the least. Uh, a case that, I mean, this is the, the issue of labor unions has repeatedly come up in recent years, and um, this, these same arguments were made when Scalia was still on the bench, uh, and it was pretty much expected that this rule, that the ruling like this would come down under him. He died before the judgment was issued. So that's why we didn't see it back a couple years ago. Okay. So we have it now. This was not a shocker uh, as much as people may have hoped for a different outcome. Uh, that doesn't, you know, <laughs> make it any easier, but, and, um, but it is what it is. And this is right now limited to public sector unions. There are of course unions who are not public sector employees who will have to see what happens with that. Um, there has certainly been a lot of cases lately trying to press unions, restrict union activities, restrict union membership. And this court seems at its current composition to be amenable to those kinds of restrictions. Uh, we will have to see what go- happens going forward. That's, and this is part for our listeners. This, this legal case has been part of one of the, the best, most coordinated and until fairly recently, least discussed uh, national campaigns we've ever seen, which has been a decades-long effort by uh, by by conservative uh, right-wing uh, and largely corporate interests to undermine labor and the effectiveness of labor of labor organizing and labor rights in this country. Uh, and that's they have done a they have done an ama- to borrow a term from uh, the, to borrow language from Donald Trump about Frederick Douglass. Uh, they've done a tremendous job. Uh, and are just being recognized more and more for this. Uh, but but there is a, and the Janus decision was definitely part of that and a grim part of that. Uh, but I do want to mention one bright spot, which was uh, Missouri on Tuesday rejected uh, a, a state law 
uh, this passed through the Republican legislature that would have uh, it was called it was called right to work, ludicrously called right to work, that uh, that actually would have uh, uh, that would have made uh, union dues non compulsory. Uh, for, uh, for where they, where in other places they have been. If you work in an industry in a place that's union represented, those the union dues are compulsory. It's a way that unions stay funded. It's a way they maintain their integrity as organizations. Uh, the state uh, organized labor at the state level in Missouri, after that law was was passed by the Republican legislature and signed into law by uh, by uh, by Eric Greitens, uh, you know one of our favorite public servants, uh, uh, organized labor interests went around, uh, got enough signatures to force a a referendum, and then won the referendum. Uh, this is a huge victory for organized labor, and I and I think we may be seeing. I think at at some point, I maybe I just want this to be the case, but I think at some point we're going to look back on this and say this was the beginning of of the of a of an organized, dedicated, and energized fight back against the an agenda that really sort of came home to roost with Janice. Yeah, and before we move on to another slightly different but related topic, I have a question for folks just generally about um, this decision and what, if any, potential chilling effects this would have on formations of other unions. Um, I'm thinking specifically uh, about domestic workers. Um, you know, they they are ununionized. I know that would be more of like a private sector environment, but sort of like how how do we think this decision would actually ha- like affect then the formation of future unions? Well, some point out that this may make unions stronger, even if union membership is smaller, right? Because the unions would actually have to provide things that people see as valuable enough to then pay money for dues for, right? So instead of being more of a passive organization that, hey, we get your money and yes, we also negotiate for you, but you know, people may not see tangible benefits, um, you know, this may actually strengthen unions having to be more focused, more organized, more receptive to individual potential members' needs uh, in order to then remain strong and build out. And we see that unions are strong in certain places, right? So in Nevada, there are a lot of very strong unions related to the hospitality industry. Right, right. And those are growing. So it's not universal across the board that we see union membership shrinking. Uh, we do see union membership strong and even growing in places where people feel like they are getting a lot of benefit from being a union member. Right. And I'll tell you, working on the campaign, those union volunteers, they were the best ones. The best. They didn't ask questions. They just wanted to know, who am I calling? Where am I going? What time do you need me to be there? And they show up. So I have lots of love in my heart for unions. <laughs> yes. God bless our brothers and sisters in organized labor. The, uh, uh, you, know, re, you know, it's a cliche to talk about them as the backbone of the party, but in so many ways, like they're absolutely critical to the functioning of, of any kind of progressive politics, just essential. Uh, and I have to say, you know, speaking of, of unions expanding, I found out recently that an NGO that I worked for early in my career and that is still near and dear to my heart, their, their employees recently unionized. Right. So, you know, I, Unions are growing everywhere, even here in DC. <laughs> Terrific. That's Speaking of organizing groups of people, stand by for this segue. Speaking of organizing groups of people, let's talk about court packing. Oh. What is court packing? Is it related to meat packing? And if not, how is it different? And is it better to roll the courts in the Boy Scout method into your suitcase and stuff the courts into your shoes so that you're saving oh, the, the ranger roll? Ah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So, okay. like, let's unpack this. <laughs> well, core packing oh is a lot less tasty uh, than other kinds of packing, uh, and certainly is politically messy. Uh, but 
Core packing can mean a couple of things, right? You can go all 20th century style and, for instance, propose increasing the number of judges on a particular court so that you can pack it, right, to get your new deal through, for example. Uh, or <laughs> you can attempt to create new federal circuits. This is something that I, I've heard floated now and again. Uh, and the idea being, ah, well, if we create new circuits, won't we have to do new appointments? And if we do new appointments, those will all be our appointments, so we're currently in power. So would that mean we can pack? pack with people that we feel are politically aligned with our ideals, people who we think will vote to uphold our laws. So packing is putting people on courts that you think will agree with you and your side. So constitutionally speaking, or like just rules, basically, it's constitutionally, it's a fancy way of saying rules, I assume. Um, is there a rule that says there has to be that nine is the a correct number of Supreme Court justices. Ah, so there is not, the Constitution doesn't say nine justices. Uh, but that is what we've got, okay? And there actually was a whole big to-do about court packing back in the New Deal times, trying to increase the number of justices in the court and what have you. Um, we're not going to move from nine, okay? Anybody you hear is talking about changing the number from nine, not going to happen. Um, at, at least unless something else fundamentally changes out there. But can the court, for instance, operate with eight, uh, as it then did for a very long time following Justice Scalia's death? Uh, and it will operate with eight for we don't know how long now following Justice Kennedy's retirement? Yeah, it can do that. But it causes a hot mess because when you only have eight, then you don't have a tiebreaker, Right. You end up with a lot of decisions potentially that come out 4-4. Well, what happens when the court rules 4-4? Whatever has happened below stays in place, okay? So it's as if you never ended up at the Supreme Court. The Court of Appeals below just stays the way it is. The, the so like, yes, having an odd number would be essential. And if the answer to this next question is, I, I don't know, that's fine. Um, how did nine end up being a decision? Why not 11? Why not seven? Sort of like, how did that number shake itself out besides being like, you know, an optimal number for a dinner party? Like, what is, what is nine? What is the significance of nine? You can fit nine in a group shot without awkwardness. Um, I wish I had an answer for you and I, I'm embarrassed that I don't, but I don't. I'm sorry. I mean, it's a weirdly specific question. I actually, it, and it's something that I never honestly thought about really um, until Scalia died, which I feel like is true for many of our listeners, maybe not all of them, is like, oh yeah, we have a Supreme Court and we're only really paying attention to it or thinking about it um, when someone's dead or, you know, someone's getting a movie made about them, like RPG. Yeah, yeah. I mean, way back when, when this whole little experiment called the United States of America started, uh, the original Supreme Court only had six justices. I just watched your brain explode. That was, that was I mean, it did. It happened because it was also like constant ties, like the even number. Like, how did we not see that one coming? <laughs> right. So there was, the, there was the chief justice. There were five associate justices. And, you know, they realized that was not good enough. Right. You needed to have this odd number. Um, and, and even when you have eight, obviously, you end up with decisions sometimes that are five, three, for example. So you still end up with an odd number. But... Um, the fewer justices you have, the more likely that you end up with these struggles and a tie, and, yeah. and which just creates a lot of complications. Got it. 
All right. So speaking of then like sort of tiebreakers, court numbers, um, I want to move us into the realm of the fictional, which is where I spend most of my time these days. So um, this was a segment that's, or a question that was floated to uh, Frank and Ellie and myself on a, a couple episodes ago before we had Brett Kavanaugh as the nominee. Um, so we were thinking about which fictional character um, from pop culture, uh, preferably an attorney um, or like works in the law somehow, but you know what? I'm not going to burden you with those types of restraints. So if you really want to go wide, feel, feel free. Um, but which fictional character would you like to nominate to the Supreme Court and why? Uh, well, as much as I would love to say Harvey Birdman, because I do have his bobblehead and he does make for the good yuck yucks. Um, that's an extremely I, strong choice. Noted, <laughs> noted jurist. <laughs> um, I'm going to say uh, the character Diane Lockhart from The Good Wife. Oh my God! Yes, strong call. That's a <laughs> very. Randy, strong we call. do not deserve her. Oh my God! No, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Please say you can wax poetic about her in your own way. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> um, she has strong opinions. Is not afraid to say them. She's decisive. She has amazing shoes, and just uh, knows her shit. And I think would. Not which she would write very beautiful majorities and dissents. Yeah, no, that is a that is an A plus choice. It's a good show. Are you watching um, the Good Fight? So like the the extension of the Good Wife. I, I do not have these fancy um, streaming interweb things. Sure, TV. How does it work? <laughs> who who knows? We'll get an expert on to sort that one out next time. <laughs> exactly. Can you eat it? Right, exactly. Um, but I feel like that's then also then a segue into a couple other rapid-fire questions that we would like to ask you to get to know you a little bit better. And I believe that you are familiar with this format. Um, so the Christine Baranski one is a great transition into um, the first question, which is, can you tell us a little about um, a book, a piece of music, a piece of culture, film, television, radio program, podcast, essentially any bit of culture that you've been enjoying that you would like to recommend um, to our listeners? Oh, uh, well, you know, again, why do I keep bringing all the doom and gloom? Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this year, both Westworld and The Handmaid's Tale. And I, I hate watched The Handmaid's Tale because it was upsetting every week, but in a invigorating and um, just really made you think kind of way. So uh, for those who haven't watched it, it is not TV to binge because. Oh that, yeah, definitely not. not. Don't do that. Just don't do that. Yeah. Um, it, it does fit in the realm of TV or culture that I like to call the hurt your own feelings. stuff. <laughs> like right. when you just want to feel dark, it's like, yeah, fire it up. I want it. So I understand. Yeah. If you want, if you want a nice counter to that, if you need a palate cleanser, if you need to sit on your couch and just say, I love everything that's happening right now, then that would be Martha and Snoop's dinner party. Oh my gosh. I've heard about this show. That is content that I need. <laughs> and it is what it sounds like folks. It's Martha Stewart. It is Snoop Dogg. Each episode, they make some food, they make some drinks. There are a lot of jokes about felonies and about um, the ganj. And mm -hmm. it's just really 
I can't really describe it except say you have to see it to understand it. Yeah, I feel like I saw a photo of the two of them together and it's like one of these people has been to jail. <laughs> right. I was like, oh, wow, love that. I was watching an episode last night for, for instance, and um, uh, one of the nuggets involved uh, Martha Stewart inhaling helium and then reciting lyrics from Snoop Dogg songs. Amazing. This is the content we crave. Yeah. Yeah. So next question in the lightning round. A food or drink you've had recently that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh. Yeah, it's a toughie. It doesn't have to be anything new. Like, well, like I, I had a Pop-Tart yesterday. I love Pop-Tarts. It's like, great. I, mm-hmm. I yeah, got to say this. I know people talk a lot, of, a lot of game about New York pizza and people that make fun of people from New York for talking about New York pizza. I was recently in New York for work. I enjoyed some New York pizza and there really mm-hmm. is nothing as good as a good slice mm. folded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fold it and you eat it. Amen. Yeah. Sometimes and, the classics are the best. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Honestly. Uh, well, also then sticking to the food theme, um, yes. to the best of your recollection, what is the grossest thing you've ever eaten to be polite? Uh, a goat's eyeball. What? Damn. Oh my God. I, uh, there's a story there. I know there is. It's go like, on. Please do. <laughs> uh, oh, actually, no, excuse me. It wasn't goat. It was lamb. But that oh well, shit! I mean, there has a lamb eyeball. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I was in Albania. There was there was a lamb made. Um, it's a thing. That's what you do. There's only two of them, so they're special. So if you're offered them, mm, that makes sense. Fair. And also, you're a guest, so like, I get it. Yeah, yeah, what? no, you've got got to you know got to eat the eye, no question. All right, so go to, uh, lamb eyeball, awesome. In, let, and so we finished the lightning round with this in the Trump era. Lots of people are interested in doing something. Uh, what is one organization that you recommend supporting and why? Uh, the Tahiri Justice Center. And that's spelled T-A-H-I-R-I-H. And we will be happy to put that in the show notes. So if Fabulous. you didn't catch that, don't worry about it. Okay. So um, I've, I've done several pro bono cases with Tahiri. Tahiri does work in immigration and asylum, particularly focused on women who are seeking uh, assistance in an asylum. Um, The clients I've had with them have been uh, political activists from the Middle East, but they help people from all over the world who are having um, asylum issues. And especially in today's climate, there is a need for immigration resources and assistance. Let us remember, you are not guaranteed a lawyer in immigration court, even if you were an 18 month old baby. So now is a very good time to support causes that put lawyers uh, together with refugees and asylum seekers to give them the support uh, and representation that they need. And Tahiri is a great organization for that. That's fantastic. Literal, literal superhero, Xander. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel like that is the perfect note to go out on that will remind our listeners that Xander's amazing and I'm a piece of trash. Um, <laughs> Not true. It's a little true. It's a little true. So again, Xander, thank you so much for joining us. Frank, thank you for joining us as well. Well, joining me, I guess. And everyone who's listening, please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at at taking ship and that ship with a P as in puzzle. So Frank, with that very positive news that we're ending on, take us out to sea. 
friends we take ship this week uh, for the seas off of uh, off of Japan, where uh, French-American long-distance swimmer uh, Ben Lecomte uh, was unfortunately recently thwarted in his attempt to be the first person to swim across the Pacific Ocean. Yes. Storms thwarted a human's attempt to swim across the Pacific Ocean. Unfortunately, uh, Mr. LeCompte had, and the yacht that accompanies him uh, had to return to port recently uh, and will to wait out the storms. And then he will resume his attempt as a human being to swim across the Pacific Ocean. And we want to go over there. Uh, we take ship honestly just to, to go over and, and praise him and his work uh, because in his attempt to swim across the Pacific Ocean, he is demonstrating our resolve and finally uh, providing the clearest example of humanity's contempt for nature and especially for our perfidious aquatic foe, the sea. Lecompte is bigger than you, Pacific. You're served, you're warned, this is happening. Friends, we take ship now for the, uh, the seas off Japan. Wonderful. Thanks, Frank. Bye, everyone.